0: welcome to into the breach a reps and warranties policy podcast by brian o'keefe and jenna usenheimer partners and co-leaders of the transactional underwriting council practice at cyfar shaw interviewing leaders from the industry and exploring the latest developments market trends and news impacting rwi and the transactional risk insurance markets welcome to the
1: latest edition of into the breach i'm your Co-host Brian O'Keefe and joined by my other co-host here, Jenna Usenheimer. How are you, Jenna? Good.
2: How are you, Brian?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. And um, you know, Jenna, uh, since starting this podcast, uh, I started a new television show, and it's one I know you've been watching. And being a podcast co-host with you, it has really resonated with me in like a very profound way. And, <laughs> And that was uh, Only Murders in the Building. And I know that you've also become a fan of it. And we can just really relate to it because of our own podcasting experience, even though we don't have murders on End of the Breed. I just
2: to say, no one's died yet, as far as we know.
1: Well, maybe our current guest will have to be weary of, you know, whether or not there's any death lurking around here. So, <laughs> and, it, and I think to our listeners, so if, yeah, I know you're all wondering, so who do we think plays which roles? And I think Jen and I have decided that I am much more of the Oliver character, and she is much more of the Brazos character if you are an Only Murders in the Building fan.
2: Yeah, I play Steve Martin. I think that's uh, how it all shook out.
1: Right, and I play the Martin Short character, and then our lovely colleague, Adria Crow would play the uh, Selena Gomez character, mainly because she's younger than us and makes fun of us all the time for being old, which is what Selena Gomez does in the show too. So, um, but Adria will love that shout out, I'm sure. Well, there won't be any murders today, hopefully, but we will have a killer episode because we have a wonderful guest who is, Jenna's laughing at that, everybody. We have a wonderful guest who will be joining us today. Uh, we're joined by uh, Heath Rodman. He's a senior vice president and transactional risk underwriter at Berkeley Transactional uh, Risk Insurance. And we're super excited that Heath is joining us on the show today. Welcome, Heath.
3: Ah, oh, thank you so much. And and I gotta say, thank you for the promotion. Not quite senior vice president yet, just uh. vice president.
2: <laughs> I'll take
3: it though. And and uh, to my bosses, pay attention, guys. Pay attention.
1: Well, well, I, well, I, I was going to say we can cut it out, but let's just leave it in. Randy can listen to that and make whatever decisions he wants to make whenever he hears exactly. It. So that's it. We like giving people solutions. Like How about that? So, um, so Heath is uh, Heath is joining us today, and uh, as our as our loyal listeners know, we've had several episodes of the show um, about uh, sort of the career paths into into and warranty insurance. Um, I think that's an important topic since I don't think anybody. Uh, really goes to law school, saying that they want to go into reps and warranty insurance, and yet all of us have somehow um, landed in this. And Heath has uh, has a very interesting career path, and, and previously being a buy counsel, and now working at Berkeley. So I think we're going to explore um, some of that in uh, in some of his background and how he how he got where he was. But maybe Heath, if you want to start off by explaining, um, you know, what you're kind of going now and and where you were at uh, previously, and um, maybe as the intro here.
0: Sure.
3: Um, So right now I am, like you said, a just a vice president, though, a transactional risk underwriter at Berkeley Professional. Um, You know, just a little background on Berkeley in case uh, your listeners don't know. I think Berkeley's transactional practice got started kind of in earnest in late 2016, 2017. Randy Hine uh, founded it with Christine Wartella. I think both of them came from Chubb and their RWI practice over there. Um, we have six or so active underwriters. Uh, we have one that speciali- plus one that specializes in tax and contingent liability. So it's a full service shop. Uh, I'd like to say we're serviced by the best crew of analysts in the industry. Uh, and then we have a small claim staff, which we hope stay woefully underworked and, <laughs> and unbusy at all times. And then you add our back office folks and that's our crew. Um, So, smaller shop, I I guess, or I take it, um, given the industry, but speaking for myself at least, uh, very hungry. And let me add real quick, as as you noted, I'm a former attorney, and I remember back in my attorney days, at the beginning of every speech or any presentation I ever gave, I always had to say, the following commentary is mine and mine alone, and not necessarily indicative of Berkeley Professional or Berkeley Transactional or WR Berkeley or anything like that. They're my own opinion. So I've gotten that out of the way.
1: We well, we have. If people listen to the very end, like the last thirty seconds of our show, we also have a a very similar disclaimer. So <laughs> a very very fast uh, speech. So um, we completely understand the uh, the legal disclaimer, and so you. Before you came to Berkeley, you, were, uh, uh, you, had a, you know, worked at Jones Day for a long time, right, uh, Rady?
3: Yes. Yeah, I, I actually summered there back in 1998 and 1999, and then started in fall of 2000 and was there my entire career until um, mid-January of 2022 when I came over to Berkeley. Um, I was a transactional attorney the whole time. Uh, the latter part of my time at Jones Day, I'm more and more focused on uh, bank M&A, bank regulatory, and fintech, and got away from just general transactional work, be it in capital markets or M&A, um, but yeah, 20-some years at Jones Day.
1: Wow, that's, uh, that's quite an impressive background, and so I think getting um, to the, some of the the meaty topics we wanted to talk about today. I guess my first question for you is, you know, like why did you make the transition from, you know, being a very long time buy-side counsel to to becoming a, you know, transactional uh, underwriter? I know that one obvious motivation is it greatly increased your chances of being invited onto into the breach and you have succeeded in that goal now, but was there other motivations? What was sort of the reason behind Uh, You know this this pretty significant uh, shift after being at Jones Day for such a long time.
3: Well, so I promise it wasn't a midlife crisis, Um, (laughs) and it also it it also really wasn't COVID. A lot of people, a lot of my friends and family, kind of think that you know COVID made you you take stock of your life or whatever it was, and it really wasn't COVID. Um, Like I said, in my career, I had more and more focused on. Um, you know, the the bank and financial institutions, which narrowed even more into fintech. And it ends up being a pretty narrow niche and at a firm like Jones Day, and I have nothing but good to say about Jones Day. Let me make that very clear. Um, But Jones Day wants the biggest of the big clients. You know, it's the 80-20 rule, 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your clients. They brag, you know, they represent, you know, 48 out of the 50 of the Fortune 50, forget Fortune 500, the Fortune 50. But when you're a fintech guy, you're looking at those tiny clients that are startups that are trying to revolutionize or disrupt the industry. And it's just, tough it's a tough platform. So I recognized that and said, maybe, you know, I've, I've done everything. i progressed all the way up through the ranks at Jones Day. And so it was just, it was the right time for me to start thinking, maybe there's something else I'd like to do. Um, the natural choice for me would have been to go in-house, maybe at a fintech or, or some kind of tech company. Um, and and I guess the next brass ring for me would have been, you know, general counsel of a publicly traded corporation. Um, and so I started looking. And, in fact, I came close. I think I was a finalist, one of two finalists for a, exactly that, general counsel position in a publicly traded corporation, um, I ended up not getting it because I had no prior in-house experience. I had just worked at Jones Day. But during that job search, um, I got in touch with a headhunter, um, Greg Falk. I'll give him a shout out. Um, he's Apparently, he does reps and warranties work. So you're smiling. You guys might have come across him at times.
2: He's a good reps and warranty recruiter. <laughs> that's that's,
3: what that's apparently what he is. So he called me up and he said, "Listen, you, I need to convince you to think outside the box. I know you're looking to go in-house, you're not looking to go to another law firm. Um, you know here's this opportunity, and just trust me you know let me let me send you some materials and let me have you talk to some people and if you're willing to think outside the box, I really think this could be a great place to land and i did i i tried to start thinking outside the box and while i was going through the process of, of uh, interviewing with that um, software company in atlanta uh, for the gc position i started talking to some people in the reps and warranties industry uh, and ultimately met randy and christine martella and here we are uh, they you know i had known the product um i remember when the product was basically first introduced to law firms and always seemed like a great idea to me, but none of our clients were interested. And it never, you know, for a while, it just, it it was just something that was out there that people were trying to sell our clients. And you know, we, we, the lawyers felt like, well, we can handle this through escrow accounts. We've been doing it for decades and decades and decades. It's not a problem. Um, So I knew the product. And when I looked at the business of the product, it just, it got more and more appealing and I made the jump.
2: And what are some of the things that you see as the biggest difference, like in the life, like the lifespan of a deal and your life now versus when you were at Jones Day?
3: Um, so yeah, I, it, it does go into timing. You know, a deal in the reps and warranties world is, you know, once it gets started, I guess once, I guess the, the starting thing, the starting bell is when a fee agreement is signed and the the, the insured or the future insured has chosen um, Berkeley as their their provider for insurance, it's, it can be as little as three days. It can be maybe a week, maybe two weeks. Um, the amount of time is so much more compressed than in a typical buy side representation on a, a large transaction where it can be months. Uh, of negotiation Um, so the time compression is huge Um, the other difference i think is um, deal flow just the sheer amount of deals even if we never get past the the non-binding indication stage we are looking at multiple deals every day of the week so and that includes reviewing acquisition agreements every day of the week whereas in the buy side practice of law You know, you get a deal, hopefully you have three or four deals percolating, but you're working on a deal for months and months, and you might not even get to the stage of drafting the agreement because you're still negotiating an LOI and the diligence phase, and it's just a much more um, involved and slow process. So it's the speed um, in the reps and warranties world that's the biggest difference. Yeah, it's
2: that in our practice, I think, too. Yeah,
1: we definitely see that in our practice and uh, we always joke too, because you work on such a high volume of deals in the reps world that, um, you know, I don't know how many Project Eagles we've had now, Jenna, or every deal from Canada is Project Maple. Like we see like the same names kind of perk up over and over again when you get into the hundreds of this, because it's just like, there's just the high volume of it. And that's just what the reps world is, is sort of based on. And, and I also think
2: too, What's the best deal
3: what'd you say? What's the best deal name
1: you've come across so far?
2: That's a, <laughs> That's a good That's one. Um, you stumped
1: us. We've yeah. we asked the questions here. I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, mine is, and I, I just recall it.
3: I don't even think I bid on it. I wanted to just because of the name. Electric Blue 2 <laughs> was my favorite name.
1: That's good. <laughs> That's that is good. good. That
2: Well, we can't top that. So which,
3: whichever... Whichever investment bank came up with that, kudos to you.
2: <laughs> I feel like we've commented before about good deal names, but I, I can't even remember the deals I did last week, let alone names from last year. So
1: <laughs> it all does merge together. But um, and I think too, one one difference I maybe observed, and maybe if you've observed the same thing, um, I think there's just a, an information. Um, Difference, you know, when you're working on the deal as buy side council, you can see the whole entire thing. You have, you know, you've been watching documents get populated into the data room and the like. And here, you know, at the quoting stage, you're often making decisions on a SIM and maybe an agreement. And then even when we get into the underwriting, it can sometimes feel like there's an uh, information um, asymmetry, perhaps. I, I don't know. Have you sort of seen that and now working on the underwriting side versus being the buy side council?
3: Oh, a hundred percent, and it's it's bizarre to me still. I mean, I've you know I've been doing this for eight months now. It's still bizarre to me that a reps and warranties insurer is stepping into the shoes of the seller and backing up an entire reps package, which is kind of one of the biggest things the seller does in a whole transaction. That's their biggest role is they make all these reps warranties about their company. We're stepping into their shoes with zero background whatsoever, um, zero experience with that target. And, but we're taking on that whole role and the amount of information asymmetry is astounding. We have, you're right, we make our indications of, you know, we send out our nibbles based on a SIM, maybe some financial statements, and you know, a draft acquisition agreement which is almost nothing and the insurers the buyers hold us to you know we, we here's our focuses here's our three exclusions that we know about up front or one exclusion or whatever and we're held to that and it, later on we get access to the data room and the diligence reports and you know it's unless it's new we are held to, you know, it's too late. You, you already sent out your indication of interest. Um, you know, you, you didn't focus on this, so you, know, you, you can't retrade what you want to focus on.
2: So now that you've been on both sides of this, what is one thing that you wish Buyer's Council understood more about the underwriting process?
3: So I, I joke that the reps and warranties policy and and that chunk or that little piece of the overall transaction, the only piece of the transaction that gets less respect by the deal team is the escrow agreement, right? I mean, that's, that's the last thing that people take care of on their checklist. The policy seems to be just one step above, but we're still at the bottom of a very long, long list of things that buyers counsel and sellers counsel worry about. And that always bothers me because it's our whole world in an the reps and warranties world. So it's the number one thing in our world. But in your buyer's council, I, you know, I guess I'm not surprised, really. I'm just chagrined by it. It's, it's a detail to them that's just before signing that they need to take care of. Um, and so they, I've learned that buyer's counsel does not have an appetite for long negotiations over a policy document. Um, they don't have an appetite for, and I, I'm not sure if it's entirely fair, the you know, what is fair, but they don't have an appetite for um, negotiations over, or at least prolonged negotiations over what should be excluded, what modifications are needed. You know, they kind of say, we accepted your quote, that's it. And unless something extraordinary comes along, we don't want to hear it. Um, and, I'd like to think that I'm an equal um, partner in these negotiations, but sometimes we feel like we're just the escrow agent. You know, we're we're just an add-on attack going to the deal.
2: That's very beautiful. and I think that lines up with our experience with the council and, you know, sort of having deal exhaustion with the way down the bottom of their long list of things to do. So I, that's a very good point, I think.
1: Yeah, no, I... Yeah, I completely agree. And then I think um, you know the next question we wanted to ask you. We, it, our our listeners know that we usually ask three questions at the end, um, and one of the questions we always ask is what piece of career advice uh, our guests would give to somebody looking to get involved in this. But because of the sort of unique subject of today's show, I think we're going to move that question up. Um, so you know, what what sort of career advice would you give, especially as somebody who Worked as buy counsel for a long time, but is now involved in the reps industry. To you know, somebody who's maybe looking to get involved in this too.
3: So, if you want to, and I do think that that's the best career path. I mean, you do you do not have to be a, a former MMA attorney in order to get into reps and warranties underwriting, but I do think that's the ideal career path. I guess the the, the toughest lesson for me to learn. So, the best advice I can give is, you know. I always said a, a good a good um, transactional attorney is practical first and foremost. But you have to be super practical when you're the reps and warranties underwriter, because you are you are the extra detail, an important detail, but you're not the the focus of the transaction. And so anything you can do to help get that transaction over the finish line is way more important than scoring a victory on a particular policy point in the notice provision of a policy. It's just not going to be um, important to the deal itself. You need to be practical. And and sometimes it means swallowing pride or not letting the the perfect get in the way of the good, whatever kind of lesson you want to take or whatever platitude you want to use. Um, But getting the deal done is way more important than winning.
2: Absolutely. And we, and we hear that from our clients, I think, all the time. So we really strive in our practice also to make sure we're being as commercial as possible. Um, okay, well, I think it's time for the, the extra fun part of the podcast. Once more onto the breach. So, I mean, you're a little bit new to the role of underwriter, but you seem very insightful. So what do you think the biggest change we're going to see in reps?
3: in the next 12 months is? So in the next 12 months, I guess, I mean, and it's why uh, the three of us started talking in the first place, I think secondaries are going to be bigger and bigger over the next 12 months. Given the economy, given inflation, given COVID, you have just so many investments that are three, four, and five years old that private equity made, um, pre-COVID, pre-inflation and all that, that are coming up now. Where their limited partners, some of them are going to be looking for liquidity events, but the kind of investment thesis, when the investment was first made, you know, I think a lot of these investments will, you know, the thesis is still valid. It's just kind of been put on hold, maybe past the limited partners' appetite, but the investment thesis still holds. So the general partners aren't going to want to just liquidate. They're going to want to look for a secondaries transaction to re-up their own position and you know, give you know, a lot of the LPs, I think, will roll over if they can, if they don't need the liquidity. So you're going to see these transactions more and more in the next 12 months. That's my prediction.
2: Well, we certainly hope that's true because we like those transactions.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's certainly a trend that we've seen yesterday. Right. So we initially met, and it's certainly a trend that we've seen uh, really developing. And I think it's a wonderful and innovative use of the product, uh, um, you know, the tacking this onto it. Um, and I think there's a lot of runway there to, to continue to expand into that, um, into that area. So we completely agree with that trend and one we're hoping to see um, as well. So so our our next question, you know, we usually do one mystery fund question um, at the end, but because we've jumbled this around and, and changed one of the end of the breach, uh, once more into the breach questions to the main part of the show, we have two mystery fun questions for you here. This is a a true first time on on our show to do two mystery fun questions. So the first one, going along with the uh, only murders in the building theme, is we wanted to know what was your favorite Steve Martin or Martin Short movie or if you happen to be a Selena Gomez fan and you want to pick one of her movies or songs or whatever, we can also go with that too. But what other, what, what other uh, piece of art do the main characters in uh, Only Murders in the Building ha- is your favorite?
3: That's a, I could have stopped. no-brainer, The Three Amigos. The Three
1: Amigos. Both. Oh, there you go. That no
3: doubt. No doubt. A classic film.
2: Well, he
1: nailed that one right on the... He had, like, no hesitation
2: to that, Jenna.
3: None whatsoever.
2: I don't know if the question's going to be as exciting, but Keith, you are in Atlanta, right? Yes. Okay, so how... The mystery fun question about Atlanta is, how many times have you been to the Coca-Cola Museum?
3: I have been to the old Coca-Cola Museum probably three or... Four times over the years, and the new version of it twice. So wow. we're talking five, six, seven times.
2: I've definitely been three, four times. But you but You've been in Atlanta longer, probably.
3: I've been since '96. Came down to law school at Emory, met my wife there, and ended up naming my
1: third child. Amazing. I mean, there you
2: go.
1: Well, Jenna was a former Atlanta native when she was at Emory. So that's why she knows the Coca-Cola, you know, very, very well.
2: Very well. And at the end, the, you know when they let you taste the Coke from around the world? That was never bad. There's
3: some bad stuff.
2: There's bad. Some, a few
3: flavors that are horrible. And I think Coca-Cola keeps them there just to, uh, just to make people have fun tasting horrible things. Okay. Most of it is though. I'm a big Coke guy.
1: Well, uh, we had some good stuff on the show today. No bad Coke um, and no murders. So uh, we really appreciate you coming on today, Heath, and in, uh, in joining us and I think giving our listeners some further valuable uh, insight into um, sort of the transition from buyer's counsel to underwriter. And uh, it's truly been our honor and privilege to, uh, have you join us today? So, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, is there any um, you know you, any contact information you want to provide? Yeah,
3: or... uh, look, hrojman at berkeleypro.com is always the easiest. You know, in in this industry, we are kind of married to our phones with the uh, email, so you're always going to get in touch with me that okay. way.
1: Great. Well, we uh, our listeners, I'm sure, will take note of that, and we really appreciate you being on today. So. So, Jenna, we've uh, made it it through another one here. Uh, Other podcasts, Coca Cola, the three amigos, you know, what more can we ask for?
2: Murder and intrigue.
1: Murder and intrigue. That's right. That's right. So, well, we can't promise murder and intrigue on all of our episodes, um, but we still hope that people will tune in for a future episode of Into the Breach. And it's really been our pleasure to host you on this one. So, Until next time.
0: Thank you for listening to Into the Breach. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, please visit rwipodcast.com. The views and opinions expressed by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of SyFarth Shaw, LLP, its partners, or its employees. The podcast does not provide legal or other professional services. This podcast is made available by The Lawyer Publishers for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the law, not to provide specific legal advice. By listening to this podcast, you understand that there is no attorney-client relationship between you and The Lawyer Publishers. The podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state. As defined in the State Bar of New York's Code of Professional Responsibility, this podcast is considered a form of attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee similar outcomes.